You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. And today we have a very special super episode, I guess. We have Peter Clements in from Mint Real Estate. He is not only the number one agent in Claremont, which we'll be talking about in the second half of the episode today. He's also the founder, inventor, I guess you could call it, of something that's fairly new contemporary in property transactions in Western Australia these days. It's open negotiation. If you haven't heard of it, it's a, you know, people will explain it very soon, but it's a, an online auction form. And anytime you see an open with two ends at the end or for sale by open negotiation when it's on you know, realestate.com, that transaction is being facilitated by Pete's platform. Pete, thank you very much for coming in, Matt. I really appreciate your time. No, thank you so much. Pete, let's start off with a quick explanation from your words. I'm sure you've done this a hundred times on different forums. What is open negotiation? So open negotiation is essentially a purchasing platform that allows full transparencies for, for buyers to know exactly what they need to pay and beat, I suppose, if there's multiple people trying to purchase a property. So what, I suppose what it fixes, Trent, and this is the thing because, you know, private treaty is um, the way that most people, certainly in WA, buy. So an offer and acceptance form? Yeah, an offer Just acceptance. normal black and white offer and acceptance. For sale. Most of us would have seen that, right? Yep, you make an offer, you write down your deposit, your settlement date and all that sort of thing. There and might be a counter with a signature and initial, goes back and forth and eventually you agree. Yeah. Or that, you don't. That back and forthy thing. And, and you know... Um, the the thing about that is if there's more than one buyer involved in a normal for sale, then transparency disappears and the agents turn into these, I can't tell you what's going on. And the arbiter of truth. You really rely on their ethics for it to be done properly. Otherwise, a lot of people who haven't been in the game, they miss out. And Trent, that's the absolute thing is agents aren't trusted anyhow by people. It's this, you know, it, what is it? Right down at the bottom of the heap as far yeah, as trust Yeah, you're down goes. near the car salesman. Yeah. And so when... A buyer is all of a sudden confronted with the agent that says, I've now magically got another offer. They and may then, or they may not. And that's what the buyer thinks, right? Particularly yeah. in a bad market. In a good market, when you know that the market's going up, it's much easier to be generous when you're a buyer. But when you're a buyer and you're not sure about the market, the last thing you want to do is overpay or bid against someone that's not even there. Compete. Right. Yeah. My mantra is don't compete. Don't compete unless you really want it. And so what, what happens with a normal private treaty or for sale is, you know, the, the agent then comes back and says, I've got this other offer. The buyer says, how much? Yeah. What do I need to pay? That's a fair question. And then all of a sudden the agent says, I can't tell you, but now you just need to somehow guess what you need to beat and put in your best and final. And they'll even have you sign this magical truth form. And, but at the end of the day, human nature as a buyer is you want to get it for as cheap as you can. Sellers want to get as much as they can. It's just the way that the world They want is. to create competition. And, and the problem is that in that sort of old-fashioned private treaty for sale situation, the buyer that misses out always asks the question to the agent, what did it go for? And th- this is the terrible thing from an agent's point of view. And agents justify this by saying, oh, they all say that. They say Because the buyer says, well, I would have paid more if I'd have known what I needed to beat, but I just didn't. And that's what open negotiation fixes because what open emulates is a traditional auction on the grass where you can actually see that someone's put up their hand and you know that that person's bid 400000 And you go, well, if, if they're bid 400000 I'm they've made it worth that, so I'll bid again. 
And because of the transparency and the fact that, and there's some really cool things in this trend, that every buyer must sign a contract to be at to be able to participate. Well, that will be my next question, right? How do you make sure that these people aren't just ghost buyers or vendor buyers or, uh, you know, they're not going to walk away t- you know, tomorrow because it's just online and it's too easy? What qualifications to open negotiation put in place or facilitate to make sure that it's, every bid is a genuine bid? Really good point. So um, in every state, and you've got to remember, this has now been rolled out all around Australia and New Zealand now, every state's got different contracts for the purchasing of a property. In Western Australia, we've luckily got the most flexible and easy one because joint form and general conditions is a standard contract. But um, the annexure that was done by MDS Legal, which creates the contract that goes, that, that all of the terms and conditions then get transferred onto a standard REWA type contract, they, we had to really think about making sure no one could scam this. So there's no dummy bidding because the vendor signs off actually when they're listing the property and on every single contract that they don't know the buyer and the buyer's not someone that's fictitious. Yep. So they would be signing up for fraud if if the seller let somebody in. Yeah. The agents as well, luckily, are still the gatekeepers. So they've got to make sure that if, you, if you're the buyer, Trent, and you walked up, I'm going to make sure that you've gone and got your pre-approval. Ideally, you know, you, because you've got mortgage brokers within your in-house here, you'd say, yeah, Pete, I've already got my pre-approvals all sorted out or I'm waiting for the pre-approval letter and a good agent will say, oh, well, can I, can I speak to your broker? So the sales agent is still essentially the gatekeeper qualifying everyone. You can't bid unless you register. And the sales agent is the one who accepts that registration and then allows you to bid. Correct. So the, you the, can't the, be a bot in the Middle East putting bids on these things. No, no. And that's the beauty of it is that the buyer themselves has to sign a contract saying that they're not a dummy bidder. They have to put in their opening bid first, which doesn't actually become a live bid until the agent then presents to their owner the copy of the your full name, everything that goes on to the standard contract. And it might have a building, a white ant, subject to finance. The agent then has to say, listen, I've spoken to Trent's broker. He's going to be good for it. Although he's got 70% finance, the broker's said that he's a great, great buyer. The owner says, all right, well, I'm happy with all those terms. They sign off on that. And only at that point is the agent allowed to then press the button on the app that makes that bid live. The key with open negotiation as well, which is is a beauty, is that in its emulation of an auction, and really it's more like open private treaty or, or, or transparent private treaty. It is. It's a, it's a layer on top of a private treaty. It's a layer on top of many private treaties that are sitting there because if it was an auction, you know, you wouldn't be able to have all these conditions a lot of the times. That's right. That's right. And it's that's what the flexibility allows all the buyers to compete except those that aren't ready. So let's say it's a property that's worth, I don't know, five, or the owner wants 500000 for it. And like a normal auction, you can start much less than what you actually think the property's worth in the hope that you're going to get it cheap. And the buyer can then, let's let's say you decide you want to get in at $300,000 just to be safe. So you pop 300000 in on your phone on the, on, on the uh, website. And then you would then go to fill in all of the details like deposit, settlement date, finance conditions, etc. The owner then signs off on that. You're in. So your 300 now is also able to be advertised on realestate.com and real on domain to say current bid. current bid 300, one qualified buyer. So it's all very clear for buyers to go, shivers, hang on a second, that seems cheap. So in fact, and this is, I know you're going to grill me on this, but the trick with open if you're a buyer is actually not going too low because it, in fact, invites more people to the property. A lot of buyers can't help themselves. But in fact, as an agent using this, the best thing I ever have is when someone comes in super low 
and that in fact fuels the fire for more buyers to come. Sometimes it's like as an agent when you're not in open negotiation setting a for sale price that's way under what it will actually go for just to cast the net as wide as possible and build competition. Well that's illegal. Yeah that's, but it happens. It, yeah it happens all the time and they're, they're getting more and more strict on that and because WA market's been really bad for a decade, we haven't had underquoting laws, you know, as as they've got in Victoria and New South Wales, where the market's been growing. And th- there's an old saying with auctions, which is "quote it low, watch it go; quote it high, watch it die," which applies to every single sales thing because you can have overpriced properties and you can also underprice properties. Now, sometimes an agent will underprice a property, whether it be accidentally, but just to get a quick sale. And that, in a way, is, is no good for the seller. Well, they're not living up their fiduciary responsibility to their seller. That's right. One of the things that upsets me, Trent, is when you see agents promoting themselves saying, sold, first home open. That's not something to brag about because it means that they've potentially missed out on another buyer that could have paid more because this whole saying, the first offer is your best offer, that is not always the case. And I've had that certainly with open negotiations because an open negotiation can sell very quickly, like my average days on market's now down to 16 days on market, which is short in WA. But the the thing... You with, also sell nice properties, Peter. Well, no, I mean, open works on, on sort of everything. So the cheapest properties, I think... So is that your personal 16 or across open? No, that's me. Yeah, that, so that's me. you personally sell a lot of nice properties. Oh, they sell themselves a lot of the time. No, because before, the, before then, we used to accidentally overprice properties because every property is unique. And that's the one thing a lot of people say, what properties does an open negotiation work on? And I I always say, well, pretty much everything because it's very, very easy to overprice a property or a lot of the times what happens from an agent's perspective is you might go in against three other agents. The owners like you the most and think that you're going to be the best agent to represent them, but they want to take on the price that the dummy agent that overpriced it to try and win the listing gave them. And that then doesn't work for them because they've now put it into the marketplace at an unachievable result. Yeah, it kills, it kills it. And we've seen that happen many times. Peter, how is open negotiation in terms of function any different to eBay? Ah, really good question. So eBay is run by a robot. In fact, eBay was based off a very old auction process called candle auctions. And a candle auction, if you go back two, 300 years, was, and can you imagine candles 300 years ago? They were probably made out of whale lard. They had a wick in them that wasn't that trustworthy. And what would happen with that is people would stand around and they would light this candle that was quite short. And everyone had to bid and say their number before the candle went out. Now, eBay's a little bit more technical than that because they've got a robot, but it's always specifically an end time that is guaranteed. And most people on eBay bid within that last 30 seconds because, mm. you know, they don't want to put the price, push the price up. Um, open negotiations very, very much like a traditional auction on the grass in that we don't really know how long an auction on the grass is going to go for. And uh, literally, if someone walks into the first home open, and um, puts in a price on the app and the owner accepts their terms and the price is high enough that the owner wants to sell it day one. Their reserve. Their reserve, yep. Then the agent can be given permission to sell the property there and then. Press a button on the app, sell it to you. Let's say you're the buyer. I'd ring you and say, congratulations, you put the knockout bid in, Trent. Um, The owner's given me a right to approve it and I can approve it and you get the property on day one. Here's the really cool thing about this for both buyers and sellers. Normally, if that was a private treaty, I'd be ringing you saying, or the other buyer's saying, hey, I've got an offer the owner wants to accept. They'd say, how much? I'd say, I can't tell you. So all of a sudden, you're getting all these offers. And if one beat you, Trent, 
I'd ring you back and say, I'm sorry, you missed it. And I can't tell you how much and buy. I can't tell you how much buy. Yeah. With an open negotiation, let's say you've put in a price that was 500000 The owner's happy with that. They want to sell it to you. Before I ring you back and say, congratulations, I'll ring all the other buyers and say, I've got 500000 The owners are going to sell the property to this chap. If you think it's worth anything more than that, I can let you into the open negotiation and you can complete, compete openly. But if you don't come in right now, I am going to sell it to this other person. Are you in or are you out? And so for both sides in that equation, there's a win-win because you as the buyer, you've paid the price that you were happy to pay. The owners were happy to accept it. But with an open negotiation, the agent is properly able to check that price in the market. And if everyone says, sell it, then you can go to bed that night happy knowing that you've done your job. But if someone joins, then I'd say to you, Trent, someone else has just joined. They've paid you know, another two grand to get in. The owners, you know, it's, the property's met reserve. We're going to sell it tomorrow at six o'clock at night. Are you available? And then on the app, uh, on your computer, you then compete from your house uh, the next night. And this is the other thing. eBay, the question there, you, you, what happens there is, and I don't know if anyone listening, if you've ever been on eBay, you can be left at that moment that it runs out, still hitting the keyboard. Sorry, I shouldn't be tapping on that, but you can be tapping on the keyboard going, oh, I would have paid more. So you're talking about the final bidding stage. The final bidding stage with an open negotiation. Frustrating as hell for a buyer. Well, it isn't, it isn't. Like any, any sort of competitive situation is not great when, when, you're, when you're there. But I tell you, it is exciting for the buyer. Well, it serves the seller. Now, that's the point, right? The seller is one that's paying for this service and they're wanting to get the best price they can. And I've personally seen a final bidding stage, which has increased the price of a property by 12%. And yeah. it's, you sit there and you're, with your hands in your hair, looking at it going, what the hell is going on? This is ridiculous. And it doesn't happen in a normal private treaty arrangement. It doesn't happen on eBay either because there isn't that, I guess, a new technology that's come in on online auction platforms across anything. You look at, you know, um, uh, Slattery auctions, Ross's auctions, they also have the same thing where in that last minute, every time a new bid comes in, it extends by another two minutes giving the other bidders a chance to do it. That's what it is, right? It is. It does extend to give you a chance to, with your partner and say, you know, usually I'd say, honey, you know. What's an extra five grand? Let's let's go again. Shall we go again? And... uh, uh, and, you know, what, what people don't see on open is the agent sometimes with the owner uh, and the owner having to bring down their expectations to actually hit reserve. When a property does hit reserve, that's when buyers truly become competitive because they'll, they'll sit there and they'll say, OK, well, um, it's on the market now. We're not competing against the owner anymore. We're not throwing money into the, into the abyss. Now I've got to win. And that's just human nature. What happens is a good agent using open will be in communication with the buyer. And when the buyer says, no, nah, I'm out. You go, are you sure? I'm out. Peter, and usually this is the cool thing. They say, Peter, I'm really sorry. We just cannot go any further. We've actually gone 10K more than we thought we'd have to. Now, that was great because it was their decision to do that. Mm. And when another bid came in, they, they decided not to buy it because of that like a normal auction. The thing about the market is, in a great market, open is definitely going to push prices up. Yeah, silly, I think. Well, too to much. good properties. It's so called I'll market. give you an example, Peter. Yeah. Um, there's a property in Willoughby. It was 9 Denian Street in Willoughby. Yeah. That, you know, up until, especially up until the grants came in, that property, in my opinion, would have been worth very low fives. Most yeah. most development sites in Willoughby were selling for low fives, uh, high fours. I was very keen on this property. I'd spoken to the agent and said, look, I want to put 510 in. I'm happy to pay 510. The current bid at that point was about 420. Uh, I said, look, let's just get it done. 
uh, to the agent. Let's just get it done. I know what I'm happy to pay. I'm not greedy about it. Let's just do it. And he goes, yep, that, that price meets the reserve. I'll lock that bid in at 510 and there'll be 12 hours left until uh, the auction will be able to finalize based on the rules of that auction. Yep. Uh, so I said, great, I should be fine. There's, there's only five or six bidders in. What happened in the last hour of that uh, that negotiation where I've bid at my highest point for my client at 5.10 is four other bidders came in in the last hour. And again, this everyone agreed this property was worth about 5.10, maybe 5.20 at the max, right? That was bid up to $582,000. Yeah. Ridiculous. And what that did is not that is way above value. And nothing else in that in that suburb has hit that value in the last four months. It structurally changed the price of every other triplex site in that suburb. Whereas we were buying them for five hundred grand a month before, now we all have to pay. Well, I mean, we're paying five thirty, five forty at least for them, right? So uh, it's it's crazy what that one that one sale, that one hour of that sale has done to the value of properties in that suburb. You can say for better or worse. It, that's that's exactly what that's done. It's set a new signpost. Have you seen that happen in other places? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two sides to it. And I, I know there's there's buyers that'll be listening to this, and there's sellers. Now, if you're a buyer, you go, oh, I don't want to be in an open negotiation because I don't want to pay too much. Yeah, stuff this. Yeah. Can I tell you, buyers tend to like this. Um, what they don't get to see is the agents often in the Perth market over the last three years was trying to find where the bottom is and. In most cases, I think you'll find that most agents are saying to their sellers, here's the market. You need to drop your expectations. And that's in a very short amount of time because the other side of things is if you've got a client, uh, Trent, that's trying to sell a property and they've overpriced it, they could be on for three, four months and lose a huge amount of money. I believe that market specialists, and I know we're going to talk about markets in a minute, is that a specialist agent in a market can hold down the value of a market. Because if that agent had said to you, yes, I'll sell it at 510, because what, what ended up happening at that 580 mark is you actually, the true market, the new market was found. Now, people love it when the market's going down if you're a buyer. Well, they don't because they don't want to buy either when the market's going down, do they? They want to buy when it's just flat. Because there's no change. Because where there is change, there is risk. That's right. And and you can never pick that because you know, you're know you either breathing in or you're breathing out. I yeah. love a flat market, Pete. Honestly, I prefer a flat market to a dropping or a rising market because at least I know my parameters. There's never been a flat market in the history of time. Um, Things always move slightly up and down, do. right? But we've do. had the good thing about the last th- three years exactly is it's been going up and down one or two percent by quarter. Not much has happened in most of the good suburbs, hmm. and you can work with that. Well, you can I get mean, a development done, for example, in 18 months and be pretty confident that the end sales revenue of your triplex, for example, will probably be very similar to what it, what it was at the start of the development 18 months later. Oh, that's a, that's a, yeah, but that's, that's interesting because you can't, you can't guarantee a down market either or an up market. We can't control oh, that. Oh, no. And the market controls itself based on all of these other things that we no one's got any control of. But yeah, let me tell you that you know the, the amount of sellers that have sold, whether it be private treaty, you know, for sale, for auction, or by open negotiation, that have been in tears when they sold it because they've sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars less than they bought it for, and the amount of um, this, you know, in the same sort of processes, the owners that are sitting there absolutely joyous that they've got much more than they thought they would, and much more the agent thought they would. And, yeah, and and it's all about process, right? Because process. And transparency is what everyone demands these days. It's funny, isn't it? You know, Royal Commissions, we want transparency. Everyone wants transparency. Yet when there's transparency that generates competition... When it works for you, right? Transparency when it works for you. So let me posit to you 
uh, a hard question when yeah. I ask you about yeah. the efficacy of open negotiation yeah. for, for all clients, for all yeah. sellers. Um, there's a property that I would have paid uh, $450,000 for in Greenwood. It's a development block. And I use this as an example in our masterclass. And it's where I had a little bit of skepticism in, with for open negotiation because the agent, who doesn't matter who it is, who used it, um, the price that he ended up getting for that uh, that block, which I would have paid four fifty four, but at the time didn't have a client for that type of property, they got four hundred eleven thousand dollars mm-hmm. for it. And the reason I believe that they got four hundred eleven thousand dollars, other than the fact that the seller just accepted it because they didn't have to accept that price, is because there was a hundred percent transparency. And when the agent is working for the seller, they're really the, with all the data we have these days, the only competitive advantage that an agent has is the lack of transparency around the nature of the sale, why it needs to be sold and what else is going on with the other buyers, whether there are bids. You can be slightly unethical as a sales agent if you want and say there are three other bids at 440, you're going to have to come in at 450 to get it. And I would have, right? If I, you know, I still would have paid 450 that property. The, but why didn't where, you? Where but why didn't you? Oh, I didn't have a client at the time for that property, so, so, right? So it wasn't worth four fifty because you didn't have the client, and the market wasn't there on the day. If I, if I was another company that had a client a week later, or a week before, that in terms of the intrinsic value been, that I would have they paid, they would have it, been bidding on the property if they were there, right? And that's they the could thing have because if if there was a buyer out there and the property was clearly marketed at you know current bid at four eleven uh, or less on the day, so if mm-hmm. there was a buyer that was willing to pay four fifty. Why weren't they a bidder? Oh, there are many reasons why someone might not have been a bidder. But if you can let me at least posit that, let's just say it was worth four fifty to me, and I would have paid it the next week, right? Mm-hmm. If I had a client for it. Where I think that this doesn't serve the seller is the fact that there is transparency, and that we know that that last bid was four ten, and therefore the other bidder only had to pay four eleven, and didn't 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 have to be. I guess you know, the seller, the selling agent, could couldn't have used. Levels of um, charades, for example, um, to get him up to 430 or 440, uh, assuming they would have paid that, right? You cannot get an extra dollar out of them in an in no, open can. negotiation because of the transparency. Right. No, no, that's absolutely not right. Tell me why not. So, um, so the seller still has to decide what price that they want to sell for. Mm. So I've had many situations where we've got to the point where the, the underbidder doesn't want to bid any further. And I've negotiated, that's why it's called open negotiation, not open giveaway, um, where we've negotiated with the highest bidder and actually had them pay $100,000 more. Um, so it, it's not that they've bid against themselves. They've had to meet the seller's expectation. Because the seller isn't compelled to sell at 4 Absolutely not. They've yep. got a price that they're prepared to either let it go or, or retain the property at. And the agent can pass it in and put it on for private treaty the next day. A normal auction, what it does, a traditional auction, old-fashioned auction, in a month it gives the sellers, if there's been some bidding, gives them real market evidence of where the price is. So if someone wanted 600 but the bidding got to 500 on on the day, they might put it on for 520 and get it sold within a week after. Open negotiation lets you do that within the time parameters. It still allows you to negotiate with any one particular buyer. And uh, I can show you bidding timeline of hundreds and hundreds of agents. By the way, there's been over... a $1.2 $1.2 billion worth of property has been sold through this app around the country now. Mm. It, it allows you to do everything that you can do in a private treaty or an auction. So, you know, there's been millions of dollars spent on the app as well to create the, the, the ability for it to do everything that a normal agent can do when they're working for their seller. That seller could have chosen not to have sold for 411 that day. 
because they, they set their reserve at that and they sold it at that. Mm. They're probably happy with selling it for that. The fact that you've said that you would have paid more, it's kind of like that classic thing where somebody says, oh, you know, I just sold my car. Oh, wow, I would have paid you more. Mm. You're a real hero, but you didn't buy it. Mm. So the market on the day spoke. The seller decided to take that. If the agent wanted to, they could have negotiated that up to four fifty if it was out there with the buyer. Yeah. Because the option's there for them to do that. It's not but run but by what a robot. the buyer what the eventual buyer had now in his sleeve was essentially the cards are on the table. The other buyer was definitely at four ten and not at four thirty, which the seller could have posited uh, it, they were at, and therefore the other the buyer who eventually got it knows they unless the seller won't accept 411 they only need to be at 411 to be the the highest bidder at the time no they to be the highest bidder but to purchase the property they still have to meet the seller's expectation Hmm. that seller wanted to sell they took 411 on the day let me ask you one final question where is open negotiation going it's obviously it's a couple of years old it's still in its infancy like any technology you probably still say it's you know in its 1.0 or 1.2 sort of uh, version right what's version three look like of open negotiation where are you dreaming this to take it what i'd like to see it is private treaty version 2.0 that private treaty doesn't exist anymore because it does do all the things that private treaty does it just gives agents all the same power that they've got at the moment. And the nice thing is it actually weeds out liars. We made this process that you cannot be a, a deceitful agent and use it. That's why a lot of agents don't use it. I always worry about the agents that say I don't want to use it because it means to me that they're probably you know, either lazy or don't care about their owner's results. Aren't up with technology. Possibly have a lot of old agents that might not Do you know, wrangle it. And, and, and I've got a funny feeling there's only two agents in Willoughby that use it. And the one that used, I reckon that you might have been buying it off. He's got a younger daughter, but um, he is 43 years in the industry. He's probably in his, I, I'm sorry about this if, it's, if it is you, but it's probably, you know, maybe in his 70s. In fact, some of the best agents are the most experienced agents and technology. If you can turn on your car and turn your GPS on and make it to a home open, opens, open negotiations easier than that. So um, it's, it's one of those things that technology really these days most people have kept up with. So where is it going in terms – could it be slightly maybe just, just like Facebook or any platform just refining the u- user experience along the way in terms of the – uh, but in terms of the features, is there anything that you're looking to add in the next couple of years? Oh, yeah, you know, there, there's things that we've all... I, I think with any technology, you're thinking, how can we make it better? How can we make it easier? I think the easier part is probably it, and we've always got our tech team refining to make the user experience more simple, making it easier for a contract to get done. Like For instance, we now, uh, and this came out luckily when COVID was happening, is all of the documentation can get signed online. So it's all done through DocuSign. You don't. It's that's a no important. Touch. That really it does fulfil the whole online no touch system uh, because it would be clunky to have an online system that also needs to be offline. Yeah, and and you know that that in itself is quite cumbersome because we're operating between two different systems, but we're always trying to refine and make that easier. I suppose um, more and more people understanding that it's good for both parties. It is good for the buyer sometimes because the buyer that bought that for four eleven um, was probably a happy Stoked. buyer on the day, yeah. yep. um, and the seller was probably sad. Uh, but you know, as the market gets better and worse, it finds market, and that's what people want. And I 100% agree with you that it finds truth mm. on that day. Yeah. But uh, there are also selling agents that sell 
a veil of truth as part of their service to be able to uh, you know serve the seller if that makes sense and there is still you know, as much as that might not be the most ethical way to operate and certainly not the way that we would like people to operate there are still people that would be able to use those gaps in ethics to get results and i guess we can't you know we can't compete with that can we we don't um, want to compete with that when it when it falls out of an open negotiation that's when you you're at the hands of someone being able to do whatever if if you were in that open negotiation for instance and put in your 510 and no one else had bid against you guess what it would have sold to you that day at 510 if the seller agreed if the seller was happy to sell it at that price otherwise it would have been passed in well i've got a situation right now where no bidders have bid for this property in morley over the last seven days uh and i'm selling saying to the selling agent look no one's bidding on this i want to offer 410 Uh, that's as high as it's going to go but the seller won't take more than 435 apparently um and again it is it always does at, at the end of the day come down to what the seller will take so is this an agent that's using open yeah, <clears throat> and you see, I'd love to know who that is because they should be taking your bid in at that price, and so that they can put it in the marketplace and see whether or not it creates competition or not. Well, yeah, we've registered and everything, and um, yeah. And has it been? Has it gone live? The bid? Uh, we haven't put the bid in. So yeah, it's not live. We have to put the bid in essentially. Yeah. But so you yeah, he's, he's essentially said, "Don't waste your time. They're not going to accept it." And that's and that's nuts, right? Because what we try and teach agents is you don't know what an owner's going to take or not because mm. it's not your job. That's what we've said, yeah. Sellers, especially when it's on paper or in this case on the computer, it's a bit more serious than a verbal offer. And what we've got is a very pure process here that's really good, operated by the right people. And and um, you, one thing, you know, having trained 2,500 agents personally around the country, uh, I can tell you there's good and, good and bad in, in doctors, in agents, in... Buyers agents, you know, we were discussing that before we came on the show, and mm. it's um, unfortunately, you know, this will always be run by an agent, uh, or not unfortunately, it, it will always be run by an agent, and unfortunately, we can't guarantee what that human's like. Pete, thanks very much for your uh, your insights onto what I think will be a much more prevalent technology every year that we move forward in in transacting in property in Western Australia, which is what we're interested in here on the Perth Property Show. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you in again to discuss how it's affecting the market more more so maybe you know, in, the, in the next year as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's move straight in, if we can, into our suburb spotlight on Claremont. Uh, very efficient to have you in for both episodes at the same time. Hit us back. I always like to chat about a bit of history, uh, you know, some early settler sort of stuff. What was Claremont when it first started to Perth and how has it evolved over time? What does it offer? people in Perth and what, what does it mean to you? I was born, lived in City Beach but I, I ended up going to Scotch College uh, as a young person and lived in Claremont from then and I think like most people you end up um, moving out of home and then graduating back to the place if you're lucky, place in, uh, where you grew up. It doesn't matter what price point you're at, I would suggest 80-90% of people in Perth end up within five kilometres of where they grew up. And Claremont, uh, I've got this great book, which was called The History of Claremont, and it was available uh, for a while when in my early years of real estate. And I read it from cover to cover. And, it's, and Claremont's got the most incredible history because it was the centre point between Fremantle and the city. Because remember, the freeway never crossed the river until the 60s. Yeah, and it was this. It was actually the Stirling Highway was called the Claremont Freeway. Uh, the Perth, Claremont Perth Fre- to Fremantle Road. Road yeah. Yep. Uh, and Claremont was actually where the convicts, right behind the Claremont um, council building, is where the convicts 
would live, and that's where the guys from the Pensioners Guard, so these were all ex-Boer War and those sort of guys that got given uh, tracts of land. So where Scotch College is, they were actually given farming land there and also, interestingly, down um, on Victoria Avenue. So that was called Pensioner Guard Road. Which is pretty much the most expensive street in Perth. The best best little bit of dirt, but they couldn't grow anything there. So, But it was nice and close to be able to look after the prisoners that were building the freeway or the road. So, you know, there's all of the names there uh, of uh, of the, the, the streets uh, names are from early settlers that uh, were instrumental in, you know, setting up the community there that that built the schools and MLC and Christchurch have got, you know, beautiful histories there and to sort of fairly modern time where guys like Sandovers, where my grandfather worked at Sandovers, but he was a huge contributor to Christchurch and essentially paid the money for that school to sort of start. I, w- I actually managed the Claremont Hotel for many years and, and that in itself was, you know, part of the amazing history there. history there. Yeah. So really the old, old pictures was the the, the train running by, the Claremont Hotel and the post office were the only buildings really at the top of the street. We then had our office down on St. Quentin's Avenue, which was in fact the last original house on St. Quentin's Avenue. So I, I love Claremont. I've lived there you know, pretty much my entire um, adult life and it's a really beautiful community of people. So just either side suburbs, you know, people will say they go into Dalkeith and it's soulless. One of the things that Claremont's kept, and I remember when they first brought in the heritage uh, nature of Claremont, where they said, all of these beautiful old buildings, you're not allowed to knock them down. You can renovate them, you can do anything you want, extend and that sort of thing, but we want the facade to be kept. And then you look at areas like Netherlands and and Dalkeith, where it's a real mishmash. And in fact, that it sort of became a bit soulless because you've got these big new houses and and because that um, th- that suburb, Dalkeith and Netherlands, was a much later suburb than Claremont, they were more in the sort of 50s. So it was the Californian bungalow instead of the beautiful 19 sort of early 1900s houses that that we love in that area. So the the area has changed in the last. I've been doing real estate for 17 years, and in the last 17 years, it has changed immensely. Has it always been? A well-to-do suburb, not re- not necessarily. So there was the good and the bad side of the tracks. So um, I don't know if anyone's old enough; they would remember the Claremont Speedway, which is where the showgrounds is. So every Friday night, and I used to live in City Beach when I was a boy. You could hear the Speedway with the wind blowing the right way from uh, from City Beach. The sewer f- uh, that was the sewer light that's in um, uh, Florida. You know, the wind blowing the wrong way there. It would it would emulate pretty much everywhere. So. If you lived on the wrong side, now I want to give the wrong side, Alfred Road uh, and go back in history, it's actually that wrong side of the tracks was when the asylum was. And if you came in as an immigrant or if you were a pregnant woman or if you were a little bit crazy, you were in that side. And that's where they put you. That's where they put you. And um, so there was a lot of those half, you used to see them in World War sort of um, two, those sort of half galvanised living quarters that people would live live in well that was they called it cockroachville the the shiny cockroaches because there were all these half things it was pretty ordinary going on the onto the wrong side of the tracks there you can't say that these days though if we look into the last you know 40 50 years of claremont's history especially it's definitely a, a destination suburb and an aspirational suburb for people not only in Perth, but even in the Golden Triangle, it's smack bang in the middle. And it's, as you said, it, it provides a lot of that cultural town centre that is lacking in a lot of other suburbs around there. Has some very expensive properties closer to the river, even in the terraces behind the, the tracks these days. Uh, and 
uh, I'm sure you'll elaborate on quite a variety of property products as well. Yeah, so the, you know there there was a few seventies and and fifties properties that they didn't put on the heritage list that have been knocked over, and but the majority of houses you'll see certainly from. Um, the Claremont train station, and that we call that sort of, I, I call it the heritage precinct. And that really runs from Mary Street all the way back to Brown Street and, and Lock. And that little bit there 10 years ago, they hadn't renovated a lot of the houses. It was considered the ordinary part of Claremont. Interestingly now, a lot of the people, because our sort of ageing population, let's call it the baby boomers who all had the big blocks in Dalkeith, Netherlands and Claremont, they see that central bit, which has all been renovated and single-storey homes, as beautiful as a retirement place because they walk, can walk into the new town centre, which changed from being, you know, when, when that whole Claremont quarter went in, it changed from being this really quaint little place where you'd buy Bovell's pies and, and, you know, you'd park on the side of the road to this big central thing with you know, high-rise and hub. And it's now, it's now found its own and it's, and it's great because it's got good restaurants and stuff in it. But um, that central part is very, very... Um, it's, you almost call it the better part now because you've got access to the trains. You can get into the Oval. If you're a footy fan, you can get anywhere you want. The Riverside which was always the premium side. Always has been? Always has been, yeah. I think that was always the part where if you had money, um, that you'd pay more to be on that side. The, the, the average size of the block in Claremont is interesting because it's 653 square metres is, is that central part in the heritage part. Um, once you get onto the other side, they do start to get a little bit bigger, but then there's some smaller ones as well. So it really does average down to probably about 650 square metres for blocks on that side of the tracks. When you go to the other side of the tracks, they get smaller. There's been a lot of development on Claremont Oval. About three or four, four or five big companies have essentially engulfed Claremont Oval now in this wall, 360 wall nearly of apartments. What's your view on personally on how that has affected Claremont and the, lively, the livelihood of it? And what's the local view of it as well? Yeah, no one likes change. And when I first saw that plan, I didn't get it. I didn't get. I'm not. I don't follow footy. Um, I was a rugby player, and I thought, oh, who's going to buy there? And now that there's only probably three empty lots that need to be built on, and they're all very unique and different, they're actually quite amazing because you've got this park in the middle that you're looking on to footy when it happens, even if you don't like footy. Watching something happen in there, whether it be trainings, and it, it's really interesting. It's certainly not a lower socioeconomic um, place. So it's not a place of crime and, and that sort of thing when you not think of a lot of units. Yeah, the high density, yeah. They're all pretty expensive apartments. Yeah, and a lot of people bought in there and I think they bought thinking they were going to make money because buying off the plan is such a great idea. I, I, I well, think, I've never seen it be a great idea, at least not in the last 10 years. Certainly not. And, you know, the, the last the last big money was Steve's and that was just before the crash and it was being built and people paid too much for that. 27000 dollars a square meter people were paying for that yeah. in the in its day but it's it's a community i think that once it's fully grown and they're not going to do too many more i hope because they're not building any more dirt out there God's yeah not that's, that was the last bit of dirt really left and i guess for town clan i want to meet the state government's quotas on density it's probably the easiest place to put people without pissing off the rest of the suburb right yeah and and you know they're, they're certainly talking about getting four stories along the highway I mean, this is all part of the urban sprawl control. No one likes it. Everyone's afraid of losing their losing their privacy. That's happened in Dalkeith right now. Poor people that lived off Waratah, behind Waratah Avenue on Phillip Road or, 
you know, the, the, the property values almost halved the day that that was put down. The heritage nature of Claremont protects the, a lot of the people in there, though. And that's the beauty of it, I think, because as much as they, you know, people would love to go back two or three houses, they can't because of the heritage. I believe that as long as it's controlled well, and I don't like apartments, they're, they're not my favourite product to sell because they keep on making newer, cheaper, worse ones. And so, yeah, I, I think people have to be very cautious when going in. But I think long term, they've got a great IGA. I think the business setup in there will be good. I think when the market actually recovers to a point that it's stable again and in, in your flat market situation, normality comes back to the world then I think when that's full of a lot of retirees and um, people that want to enjoy the beach, the schools, uh, and, and the freedom of being in probably, you know, the western suburbs' best central suburb, yeah, I think Claremont's going to be beautiful in another decade. Let's talk about who your buyers and sellers are. Generally, what does your seller look like? Seller, at the moment, a lot of the sellers are people that are either looking to downsize. So we're getting a lot of the baby boomers right now that are saying, okay, you know, I want I want something low maintenance, I want a tree change. Um, which is good because it's making more room for the for the buyer. So the average age of a buyer in Claremont or the owner of a Claremont uh, house now is around forty. So that's come down quite a lot as well. Mm-hmm. And so we are seeing the baby boomers move out of their homes and into into more of the apartment type living. Um, the buyers are definitely those families. They're trying to get to the beach. They're trying to be there for schools. If you took every private school out of the western suburbs, again, I think it would halve in value. People put their kids there because it's close to the city, it's close to the beach. You can grow stuff in the garden, and you've got all of the schools uh, within moments. Um, so that's the buyer. It's, a, it's a, maybe a late 30s, early 40s. You know, a couple with kids who are just about to get into junior school? Yeah, you bet. I mean, our, our, there's only 52 properties that have sold in Claremont in the, in the last year, since January. La, the year before that, it was a, uh, 114. So we're, we're well under for Why the is year. that? Is the market not meeting itself? The buyers are still stuck in last year's numbers and the sellers want 2015 numbers? Sellers are holding on. There's a weird moment right now and in I think the that's the theme with the whole of Perth right now and that's a lot of frustrations that I've personally got as a buyer's agent is I can't as a developer uh, and I know that's not most of the market but I can only use current numbers in terms of what things are worth I can't forecast what they might be worth in the future however the only people that want to sell right now are people who haven't had to sell in the last five years and uh, they want 2015 numbers otherwise not that bothered yeah so they're affluent enough around there to be able to hold if they don't want to sell I think a lot of um, and and this is reminiscent for me of when the market did start to boom. I don't think we're going to get another boom in WA, by the way. What do you think is going to happen? I think that we're going to have a controlled rise, but I think we're going to have incredibly low stock. If we go through Christmas with low stock levels, we're going to see um, buyers paying silly money again. Is that on the definition of a boom? It's going to bring the market back because WA, if you look at our trend, if you put a ruler across what used to be traditional growth, in fact, we are still sitting a little low. So I think if you ran that traditional growth of 5% back from the olden days before we, before we had our boom from 04 to, to, to 08, <clears throat> you'd see that, in fact, we need to have a tiny little lift to get us back to that normal plateau. Um, I hope it does go into a normal plateau of 5% growth over time because that's actually controllable. It's sustainable. You can work with it. Well, people can manage mortgages. You know, We could get into a whole other conversation of where the markets could head because the worst thing that could happen right now is we have interest rates increase because yeah. everyone's borrowing 80%. 
to be honest, I think I think that's where our truth is in the market, and it comes from the contrarian nature of monetary policy that is reflective of the East Coast uh, and not reflective of Perth in the West Coast. And what we get, and the reason we have booms and busts in Western Australia, is not because of the mining industry. The mining industry is somewhat of a factor, but the real reason is because of our counter-cyclical monetary policy. Whenever we have a rising market based on increases in population, we have low uh, interest rates and when we have whenever we have we need a bit of help uh, the interest rates start rising or keep rising because the east coast is is pushing on and that creates these wild swings in our in our prices where otherwise it really shouldn't yeah and and you know we're in a very strange time at the moment where incredibly low debt can be bought and um, luckily for the government because they they're needing to fund you know, and they're about debt. to relax the responsible lending laws that have killed people for the last couple of years I think they're going to relax them but I don't think the the banks are. See, I, I actually think the banks are going to be naturally responsible and not lend. They already are becoming more cautious. Now, when they know the market's good and they can lend out there and resell the property, then I think that's when banks are um, able, able to be a bit more... Um, well, they have a profit line to meet, and that comes from volume, right? Yeah, but they, they also would be sitting there saying that if they're worried about the market dropping and if interest rates could potentially go up and then they're going to see foreclosures... They don't want to be stuck in a flooded market where you're getting mortgagee sales. Hmm. So although the government said, oh, we're going to let you lend more, I'm not sure the banks will. Let's move on to uh, the price points in Claremont. There's a number of price points. Can you quickly move us through the cheapest thing I can buy, which I'm guessing is a shitty old BGC flat somewhere, if there are any, and then up to the point of the most expensive thing I could buy, where it is and what it is. Yep, so you're going to go from... um, uh, right on the corner of a nice little busy intersection with the underpass in Claremont on Stirling Road, one better um, 1960s uh, salmon bricker for about 310 on Stirling Highway. You, you, you two better, you, you know, still busy, um, but you're close to schools and everything. You're probably going to pay into the into the high threes. Um, the apartment market is, I think, cheap buying, but because they're making more of them. Uh, you, but you're probably going to get a one better in there for about 500. Median price in Claremont right now is at 1.3. Um, and what are you getting for that? For 1.3, you're not. You're probably buying on um, the Royal Show grounds side. So First Second Avenue, Mel Vista. You can get a newish. You know, within the last 10 years, you'll get a newish four bedroom, two bathroom, double garage house on 400 square meters. Um, you go into more of the heritage part, you just can't buy anything really. It'd, it'd have to be run down and there's no more run down ones. So really at about one fives, you're getting into something nice, three bedrooms, two bathrooms in an older home uh, in the middle part or something that's a bit more run down in, on the river side of the highway. And then, you know, there was an apartment that sold on Victoria Avenue, been on the market for a long time, but he ended up getting $3 million for that set back at the top. You're sitting at around about for a 653-square-metre block in the middle. If it didn't have a heritage house on it, you'd be looking at around about 2100 bucks a square metre. You're looking at about $2,300 a square metre once you get onto the riverside. And then if you get onto Riley Road or if you get onto Goldsmith Road, which are the two sort of premium non-river, you're looking at about twenty four to twenty five hundred dollars a square meter for a quarter acre. Yeah, so you're starting, to, you're paying some real money uh, to get in. So, and look, it's not a first home buyer's sort of suburb as as much as there are some you know, cheaper products there uh, for that price point. They're probably getting a little bit of land somewhere else or st- sticking back and moving out and then coming back in later. It's definitely a 
third, second or third or fourth buyer suburb, isn't it? It's yeah. We got most people are moving from Floriet. They're moving from City Beach or further out to get their kids closer to school. A lot of Suvi people will come across because they love the heritage houses. Fremantle people that are up, up upgrading will head towards Claremont because it's got that lifestyle that's sort of in between the Bohemian and and you're still getting a character that lovely character feel. A lot of expats when they're moving back to to Perth that don't want to necessarily be on the beach. There is a terrible divide, and it's the private school divide. If you live on the other side of Christchurch, so on, uh, in Cottesloe and Mosman Park, unless you leave home at exactly the right time, you can be stuck in, in four kilometres worth of traffic for 30, for 30 minutes. Because everyone's trying to drop their kids off at Christchurch Correct. and they'll see. Yeah, so it's, it is the convenient side if you work in the city because you, you avoid all of that. Because you're turning left. You're turning left, <laughs> yeah. Next up, development opportunities. Is there much going on or is it all pretty built out unless you're Paul Blackburn? Uh, Paul, yeah, if, unless you can buy an old age uh, home and, and do what Paul's doing and, you know, like him or, or not, um, God, he's, you know, he's, he's very, very ferocious in that world and he's building good product, so yeah. you can't take that away from him. The development opportunity there is hard because uh, you, you've got an R20 sort of coding on most things. And the they've, blocks are less than 900 square metres. They've got heritage-listed properties, so... Bit of a minefield. It is... Um, you know, Netties still there's some great opportunities there. I think, uh, it's, but Claremont is probably just stick away from it if you're a developer. Not really worth it. Yeah, if you're a developer, you're going to pay too much. There, there are good agents in there. If you like a house and you want to live in it for a reasonable amount of time, and if you can get something and extend and put a beautiful extension on the back of a little two or three better, you can make some good money if you can turn it around. But I'm very cautious in saying to people invest in in doing anything like that right now because you've got to be sure that the market's stable before you go and throw a million dollars into something. Last question. Median house price is $1.3 million. You just told us that, Peter Clements. With $1.3 million in your pocket today and you had to buy a property today, what would it be? In Claremont, where would I buy 1.3 right now? For an extra little bit of money, I'd pay a little bit more for a place uh, that Nathan McIntosh has got on the market it's a duplex double over a thousand square meters that you could actually then turn into triplex there. It's got a 1970s place on it. You could triplex it, but I think someone could build a nice house on the back, leave it as a huge block, land bank the front, sell the front off later on. Very, very interesting. Peter, look, it's been one full hour of conversation, probably I think the longest podcast episode we have had and might ever have, but uh, the information has been unbelievable. The chat's been good. The banter's been good. I appreciate you uh, uh, taking me up on a couple of the hard questions there and there have been some great answers. Thank you very much for this last hour. It's uh, a lot of, I'm sure the listeners would really appreciate everything you put towards the podcast today. Thank you. And yeah, happy to help anyone. If you've just got questions about getting in there, I'd much rather have a long-term client that I've helped um, even if you're not going to sell your house with me and, uh, and know that you've bought well. Thank you very much, Pete. Have a good day. You too. See ya. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!